1: Few things are more devastating than a loved one that's gone missing. From Wondery, The Vanished is a podcast where host Marissa Jones tells stories of missing persons that have gone overlooked. She seeks out the real story from friends and family, hoping to help them find their loved ones or at least a sense of peace. Listen to The Vanished podcast wherever you get your podcasts, or you can listen ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts or the Wondery app.
2: when the pretty blonde in the cutest house on Main Street is brutally
3: murdered. It was so gory that it almost didn't even look real. Folks in Bloomsbury, New Jersey, wonder what went wrong. Bloomsbury
4: is a place where people leave their doors unlocked. People in
2: the borough were absolutely stunned, they were scared, they wanted answers. Everything seems to point to one of Monica Massaro's many suitors most homicides in this country are committed by suspects that know their victims but a startling discovery takes the case in an entirely different direction
5: you couldn't dream it up it's like a movie They live two totally different lives how well do you
2: know your neighbors what lies behind the white picket fences Bloomsbury, New Jersey, is the definition of small-town America. The kind of place that belongs in a Norman Rockwell painting. When you
4: look at photographs of Bloomsbury from 100 years ago, uh, it looks the same as it does today, other than the, the absence of automobiles.
2: With just a hair over 800 residents and more than an hour's drive from the Big Apple, it's country living at its best. Bloomsbury is approximately
4: one square mile. We have no need for a traffic light. It's a a quiet,
2: safe community. Just the kind of community Monica Massaro yearns for. After moving to town in 2004 from the next county over, there's no place else Monica would rather be. Good friend Lauren Berger knew that Monica had finally found the
6: ideal hometown. She had looked through a bunch of different areas. And she just fell in love with Bloomsbury. She loved the fact that the town was small and that people seemed to be very friendly.
2: And Main Street is about as friendly as it gets. Monica's quaint farmhouse sits on the street right across from the town church.
6: She was very happy there. It was kind of just right. Just right for a small town
2: girl who likes to live large. Monica's the kind of blonde who never sits home on a Saturday night, or any other night for that matter.
6: Monica was very friendly and outgoing. So if you suggested something that sounded like a fun thing to do, she was usually up for it.
2: And Monica enjoys her work as much as her free time. She's the proud and dependable owner of a budding house
6: cleaning business. She was getting a lot of new clients. It's going very well for her.
2: So well, 38-year-old Monica seems to have it all.
6: Things are just finally coming together for her. It was really good for her.
2: But Monica's good fortune is about to run out. Trooper Eric McNeil is based at the New Jersey State Police Barracks just seven miles outside Bloomsbury. Since the town is too small for its own
3: police force, it's McNeil's job to be on the lookout for any mischief. There's not a whole lot of crime. The town, they roll up the sidewalks at night, so to speak. It's very quiet. However, on Monday afternoon of July
2: 30th, 2007, it was anything but. Resident Gavin Saunders is in a panic, worried that something's happened to his cleaning lady, Monica Massaro.
3: He was expecting her to come over to his house to complete a cleaning job, and she never showed up. Also, she had left cleaning supplies there, and he thought that that was odd. And according to Gavin, she's not answering her phone or door, even though her car is parked in the driveway. My thinking was perhaps that she's sleeping or maybe just doesn't want to answer the door for the person who was looking for her.
2: But as McNeil heads to Bloomsbury police get another call about Monica. Someone has found her driver's license and car registration by the railroad tracks behind her house. This might not be just another routine well-being check after all. When McNeil
3: pulls up to Monica's, the house is as pretty as a postcard. When I checked the door to see if it was locked and, and wiggled the handle and kind of gave it a slight push, the door opened and then I entered the residence and announced myself.
2: But no one seems to be home. And when McNeil heads towards the bedroom,
3: something catches his eye. The door to that bedroom was open about 12 inches. And through that, I could see a foot hanging off the side of a bed. When I opened the bedroom door, I saw a body that was completely drenched in blood. She was nearly decapitated because of the amount of blood, it was tough to tell exactly where the wounds were, but it was evident that her throat had been slit. It was so gory that it almost didn't even look real. Unfortunately, it
2: is. Monica Massaro is dead, the victim of a heinous crime
3: right there on Main Street. I have never seen anything like that before. My, my mind definitely wasn't prepared to see what I, what I saw that day. During his five years with the state police,
2: Detective Nicholas Oriolo has seen plenty of things he wish he hadn't. When the stress of the job gets to be too much, he hits the trails with his buddy, Newman.
5: He's a Bouvier de Flanders, a big cattle dog. I can go home, go take the dog on a long walk or a hike, and kind of clear my mind
2: and and de-stress for a little bit. But as the head honcho on the Monica Massaro homicide case, he'll have to reschedule any upcoming walks with his four-legged friend. The Masero case,
5: you know, is a very violent crime. You know, there was a violent struggle. It was evident that most of the stab wounds were post-mortem. A killer who clearly wanted to leave his mark. It didn't appear to be a burglary gone bad. It was probably somebody that knew her or that Monica knew that she was comfortable having inside the house.
2: So when detectives hear neighborhood rumors of a Prowler wandering around Bloomsbury last night, they don't think much of it.
5: There was someone out at the time when Monica was killed, shaking doors, looking through windows. Police don't know if it really was a Prowler or just some troublemaking kids. So it opened up a scope of it's either gonna be someone very close to Monica, or as we feared, it could be a random person that was out trying to get into houses.
2: When Lauren Berger learns about her friend's death, she
6: doesn't know what to make of it. I was in shock. I couldn't believe it. I just couldn't imagine what was going through her mind in her last moments. The, the sheer terror and horror that she must have felt is painful to think of.
2: Monica never imagined that danger could be lurking in Bloomsbury. That's why, like many of her neighbors, she kept her doors unlocked even at night. And according to police, it was an open invitation her killer couldn't resist. The perpetrator would have come in through the side door without having a force entry. But who? Who wanted the town's social butterfly dead?
5: Monica knew a lot of people. She had many friends in many different avenues of life. We knew it would be very difficult to find Monica's killer. There was a whole long list.
2: In a town with just a handful of streets, gossip spreads faster than you can say Bloomsbury, New Jersey. By Monday night, everyone knows what happened to the pretty blonde on Main Street.
6: I couldn't believe that something like that happened in Bloomsbury. It didn't feel real. It was very strange.
2: So strange, Mayor
6: Mark Peck, Monica Massaro's neighbor,
2: just six doors down doesn't know what to make of it either. Certainly Monica's murder
4: was by far the most significant and serious thing that anybody can remember happening in the borough. Last year, we had some bicycles that were
2: stolen, and a garden gnome was stolen. And that was was really the extent of the crime. It's only the third homicide in Bloomsbury's 102 years.
4: It either had to have been something personal, like a lover's quarrel gone horribly wrong, Or it was a psycho who was was on the loose.
2: As a state police detective, Justin Blackwell has worked plenty of cases. But the Massaro homicide is his biggest one yet. Uh, There were multiple agencies involved. And at the onset, there were dozens of uniformed personnel and detectives assigned to the case. Detectives don't know who murdered Monica. But it's a good guess it's someone in her inner circle. Only someone with close ties to Monica could have been so cruel. You typically don't see that type of
7: rage and aggression and that extent of an injury uh, to a body uh, unless there
2: is some sort of interpersonal relationship. And when the coroner's report reveals the details of Monica's injuries, detectives are confident they're on the right track. The killer had no interest in sexually assaulting Monica. He just wanted her dead. The fatal blow, a 12-inch slash to her neck. The
7: knife wound to her neck was very, very deep, uh, almost to her spine. Uh, So, yes, she was almost decapitated.
2: And the attack didn't stop there. The perpetrator stabbed Monica 17 times post-mortem. The coroner estimates the time of death to be sometime Saturday night, two days before Monica's body was found. The killer clearly knew how to leave the scene
5: unnoticed. The crime scene was negative for any evidence of who might have
2: been in there. Finding Monica's killer is going to be like finding a fat guy wearing a Santa suit in December. Monica's list of friends and acquaintances is a mile long.
4: Monica had just tons of friends, acquaintances, you know, online, in person. And the police really had, really had a big job ahead of them just to talk to people who Monica interacted with.
2: Before police dive into the list, they focus on the name at the very top, Gavin Saunders, who called police after Monica didn't finish cleaning his house on Saturday. Detectives now know that this family man from the next town over hired Monica to clean his house while his wife was away on vacation. And
5: we wanted to rule out that he was looking to have some sort of relationship with Monica
2: as a possible motive. After all, Gavin certainly is acting like a wayward husband.
5: We interviewed him for a long period of time. He was confrontational with police. He was almost combative at times. He was so frantic about the fact that she had been killed that we had to take a hard look at him.
2: Police become even more suspicious when Gavin makes a surprise visit to Main Street. The client showed up at the crime scene in his vehicle and was
5: watching from a distance. Detectives then went to approach him again to talk to him, find out why he
2: was there, and he took off at a high rate of speed. But despite Gavin's unusual actions, police soon doubt he's their man. Through interviews, through
5: phone records, we were able to place him down at the New Jersey shore at the time when we believed Monica
2: was killed. So police move on to someone who knew Monica very well her on-again, off-again boyfriend of 17 years. Monica was
5: deeply in love with this individual, and we had found writings in her diary about how she
2: cared for him, how badly she wanted to be with him. But the chances of Monica and her boyfriend living happily ever after are slim. This isn't exactly your typical love story.
5: Monica and her boyfriend's relationship was kind of like a love triangle. She was always there, even though he was involved in another relationship. The fiance knew about Monica, and Monica knew about the fiance. And uh, they both wanted him to themselves. The fiance told him he had to stop.
2: And that made Monica's boyfriend, Tim Kadner, suspect number one. He did not come forward to come and speak with us.
5: We had to track him down. He wasn't very forthcoming with information. We felt at many different times that he was lying to us. And his fiance, Marilyn Boback,
7: a close second. She would have had a motive to kill Monica, uh, in that she was certainly mostly invested in her relationship with her fiance, and she felt very threatened by Monica's relationship with her fiance. Both had reason to do it, but did they?
5: They didn't live in Bloomsbury, but they weren't far away. They had said that they were out shopping at the store. Uh, you know, they were able to produce receipts and talk about what they saw on television. Their alibi was pretty solid.
2: With the most obvious suspects now at the bottom of the list, the hunt for new names kicks into high gear. Luckily for detectives, Monica didn't just write about her boyfriend in her diary. She wrote
7: about everything. Monica's diary was able to provide us with a timeline of her activities up until the point in which she was murdered. It also provided us with names
2: of friends and other associates who we did not know about. And one particular diary entry leads detectives right to a man who had a motive, Kirk Walt. We learned that they had met at a club,
7: seen a band, they became friendly. It seemed to us that this male had much more interest in Monica than she had in him. They had a short little
5: relationship, but truly Monica wanted to be with her boyfriend. Apparently, Kirk is a guy who doesn't take no for an answer. Left a message that we referred to as a breakup message on her cell phone. He had the mentality
7: of, if I can't be with her, perhaps nobody else should be with her. But did Kirk make good on his
2: threat or not?
1: Hey, it's Janice from Warner Brothers Discovery. Are you looking for ways to be happier, healthier, more productive, and more creative? Gretchen Rubin is the number one best-selling author of The Happiness Project, and every week she shares insights and practical solutions in the Happier with Gretchen Rubin podcast. Gretchen's co-host and happiness guinea pig is her sister Elizabeth Kraft, a Hollywood showrunner. Join Gretchen and Elizabeth as they reveal fresh insights from cutting-edge science, ancient wisdom, pop culture, and their own experiences about cultivating happiness and good habits. Every week, they offer a manageable try-this-at-home tip you can use to boost your happiness without spending a lot of time, energy, or money. Suggestions such as follow the one-minute rule, choose a one-word theme for your year, or design your summer. They also feature segments like Know Yourself Better, where they discuss questions like are you an overbuyer or an underbuyer, a morning person or night person, abundance lover or simplicity lover. And every episode includes a happiness hack, a quick, easy shortcut to more happiness. Listen and follow Happier with Gretchen Rubin, an Odyssey podcast available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Three days after Monica Massaro's murder, a good night's sleep is still hard to come by in Bloomsbury, New Jersey. No one was in custody. No one had been arrested. That's naturally going to have a troubling effect on people, and especially in a small town like this. The Massaro case is headline news at the Express Times in Easton, Pennsylvania. And Tom Quigley, the paper's New Jersey crime reporter, is all over the story. We repeatedly had phone calls from Bloomsbury residents, day in and day out, asking for updates. Are police telling us anything? Are we holding something back? Residents have no idea state police have their eye on quite an unusual character, Kirk Walt. According to Monica's diary, the two music lovers recently struck up a casual friendship. He thought that they were going to have a
5: certain type of relationship. He was clearly smitten. And, in fact, he
2: was not important to Monica. Kirk wasn't about to let that get in his way. And he tells Monica so in a rambling message he leaves on her cell phone.
5: He was clearly crying on the phone and whining, where he's emotionally talking to Monica about how he feels for her and how he doesn't want their relationship to end. But when police ask Kirk about Monica, he develops a sudden case of amnesia. He denied having any kind of relationship with her, despite the fact that Monica actually wrote about it in her diary. He's lying to us. Made him very suspicious. Maybe
2: the sound of his own voice will trigger Kirk's memory. You You want to talk to
5: me? We eventually told him that. Well, in fact, you know, we do have your call, and he denied it until we played it for him. Looks like police have
7: Kirk right where they want him. He certainly has a motive, but did he have the means? Uh, the caller's alibi the weekend of Monica's murder was that he was at a concert the night of her murder uh, in the state of New Jersey. And ultimately,
2: his alibi did check out. And he's not the only one. Three weeks into the investigation, most of Monica's inner circle has been cleared.
5: All of our suspects we were able to put an alibi to. And we, we uncovered every rock and stone... We, we really started to
2: get frustrated. The state police's major crime unit is made up of the best of the best. And Detective Sergeant Jeff Noble is just that, a straight shooter who isn't afraid to take the case in a new direction. It is absolutely crucial for detectives, when investigating a case, to leave open all options, to think outside the box. In order to keep the Monica Massaro case going, Noble must face a frightening fact. A stranger might be to blame for Monica's murder after all. As we rule people out that
8: are connected to the victim, then the chances rise that it could be somebody
2: that is not connected to the victim, a stranger. If a stranger is the culprit, state police need all the help they can get. It's crucial in any investigation
8: to keep an open mind and to keep as wide of a net as you can to try to get
2: information that could be relevant to your case. So Noble and his team reach out to the FBI and enter the Massaro case details into VICAP, the agency's violent criminal apprehension program. If someone has committed a similar crime anywhere in the country, detectives will be notified right away. Although that initially wasn't a very high probability, we still did it. A long shot for sure. How could a stranger commit murder in a town where everybody knows everybody else? The only strangers that venture anywhere near town usually stay put, at the truck stop just up Main Street. It's an eyesore folks usually don't think much about. Until now.
7: If you stood on Monica's front porch and looked to your right, uh, you could see the truck stops down the street. It wasn't out of the realm of possibility that there could have been a a truck driver involved in her murder. Far-fetched? Maybe. Maybe but not impossible. It wouldn't be a far walk for a transient or a truck driver to stop at the truck stop and then walk up the street and commit a crime in the town of
2: Bloomsbury. If a truck driver is behind the murder, chances are he's long gone by now. With that Interstate 78 so close and that truck
8: stop, which is so busy, every hour there's a new set of people that are at that truck stop. The chances of us finding that killer would be very, very low.
2: It's yet another bump in the road. The hunt for Monica's killer is turning out to be one difficult ride. During hard times like these, Justin Blackwell squeezes in time for the gym. It's his sanctuary. It gives you time to yourself. It gives you peace.
7: And a good attitude goes a long way on the job. I think exercising in general helps you be a better policeman. That allows you to perform longer, you have more stamina, uh, and you have the endurance that you need to carry out these long investigations.
2: And sure enough, a month into the Massaro case, police still can't see the finish line. There's nothing to put us over the edge to the point where we can feasibly or logistically charge anybody. Just when detectives aren't feeling very lucky, one phone call changes everything.
8: We'll take luck over skill any day of the week. You never know. Where are you gonna get that critical piece of information? And in this case, that
2: came from several hundred miles uh, from us. According to Vicap, there's a case in Chelmsford, Massachusetts that just might be connected to the Massaro murder. Maybe. It turns out three weeks earlier, 15-year-old Shay McDonough was attacked in the middle of the night in her very own home. And like the Massaro suspect, Shay's attacker slipped through an unlocked door. We were
8: told by the Chelmsford Police Department that Shay McDonough was home, sleeping in her bed. And she was awoken to a man on top of her, armed with a knife. He had his
5: face covered with a mask and had the knife to her throat and he told her not to move, or he would kill her. It's
8: every family's worst nightmare. Shay McDonough made a little bit of noise, uh, just enough noise to... Uh, awake her father and her mother. Her father went in her room to check on her. You know, he was able to grab him from behind and wrestle
5: him to the ground, knife in hand. And at that point, Shay McDonough's mother came into the room and actually grabbed the knife with her bare hands while Shay ran outside and dialed 911.
3: I'm going to keep you on the line with me. Where in the house is he? Is he? Does he know you're on the phone with me? My dad's holding him down. My parents will even put you guys. Out. Okay, they're holding
4: him down right now. They got they got him held down.
2: Shea escaped unharmed. And that's not the only difference between her and Monica Masaro. She's much younger. Their victim and our victim were so different. And the odds
8: of a case in Massachusetts. Being connected to a case in New Jersey, like any uh,
2: case, the odds just weren't that high. But any good detective knows you can't win if you don't take a gamble every now and then. They have a case that sounds kind of similar to
5: us. He broke into a house and put a knife to a young girl's throat. Can it hurt to call?
2: Get more Nightmare Next Door online at investigation.discovery.com. Bloomsbury, New Jersey, is usually a happy little place. But a month after Monica Massaro's murder, the mood is still dark as a winter's day.
4: Monica's murder dominated on uh, not only conversation, but just it was like a pall that hung over everything in the borough.
2: Even so, at the state police barracks, detectives are cautiously optimistic. All eyes are on a brand new suspect in Chelmsford, Massachusetts, a man who attacked 15-year-old Shay McDonough in the middle of the night. The attacker had entered the house and put a knife
5: to Shay McDonough's throat, which we found very similar to Monica. But
8: this suspect didn't get away. The girl's parents had uh, bravely fought the suspect and held the suspect until the arrival of the Chelmsford police.
2: In custody, Adam Lane a long-haul trucker.
8: He was in his early 40s. He was a white male, and he had no significant criminal history.
7: We found that Adam lived in a house with his wife uh, and kids in Jonesville, and Jonesville's a, a very quiet town in
2: North Carolina. Doesn't exactly sound like killer material, but the detectives up in Massachusetts know a bit more about Lane than their New Jersey counterparts. They suspect he isn't just a run-of-the-mill criminal. Not surprising, considering he was dressed like a ninja and armed with several knives when he was arrested. And the detectives up
8: there knew that this was unusual, that their suspect that they had
2: was something that they hadn't seen before. Massachusetts detectives are also convinced the McDonough's house wasn't Lane's first stop that night. Several Chelmsford residents spotted a man in black jiggling doorknobs just hours before the attack. Sound familiar? Some of the other residents in the area near Monica
8: Messaro's house had thought that they might have heard their uh, front door jiggling. That
2: definitely raised our suspicions regarding Adam Lane. As promising as it sounds, New Jersey State Police still aren't sure if Lane is their guy. The timeline just doesn't seem to add up. Shea was attacked on Sunday night, a day before Monica's body was even found. What our confusion with the case was, Adam Lane
5: was arrested right around the same time that we discovered Monica's body. And he was arrested in Massachusetts. Monica's body's here in New Jersey.
8: My gut was telling me, hey, Adam Lane is definitely uh, looking good for this. But I got to be honest, my sensible opinion on it was that it's just another lead.
2: New Jersey investigators don't even know if the interstate trucker was actually in the Garden State the night of Monica's murder. With the amount of miles Lane logs, he could have been just about anywhere, let alone in little old Bloomsbury.
8: We had asked the detectives from the Chelmsford Massachusetts Police Department if there was any information, any documentation, uh, travel logs, receipts, toll records that could place their suspect, Adam Lane, in New Jersey at or near the time of the murder of Monica Massaro.
2: It's a long shot at best, but every now and then, good cops beat the
8: odds. So while we are on the phone with Chelmsford, Massachusetts, the detective tells us that he located a receipt that he had taken from uh, Adam Lane's personal property on the night he was arrested in Massachusetts. And not just any receipt. He had bought a rare detector at the TA truck stop, which is the truck stop located right near
2: Monica Macero's house. It looks like the boys from Jersey may have just hit pay dirt.
5: When I heard that, I just, I, I stood up out of my seat. It was like a spotlight went on.
2: And we realized that we now have a connection. Lane was in Bloomsbury all night and within walking distance of Monica's house. But when? The receipt was, was dated uh, for Sunday, July 29,
8: 2007, at approximately 5 a.m. And the date and the time matched perfectly to the window that we believe Monica Macero
2: had been actually murdered. The discovery sends chills through the Perryville barracks.
5: It was such a break in the case. It was overwhelming. It was, wow, all of a sudden, here's our break. This is it.
8: There was a real bad guy who was in Bloomsbury right around the time Monica died. You tend to get kind of pumped
2: up about getting a lead like that. A lead that shows Lane had plenty of time to cross things off his to-do list. The time period in between when Adam
7: Lever Lane's receipt was stamped at the truck stop in Bloomsbury, and the, and when the attack took place on the McDonough family in Massachusetts was less than 24 hours.
8: He had the time, he had the means, he had a truck, uh, to to go from one state to the other and commit both these uh, horrible acts within, within 24
2: hours of each other. A timeline that once seemed unlikely now sounds feasible. But just because Lane was in Bloomsbury that night, doesn't mean anything. So we were far from naming him as a suspect or
8: charging him or even believing that he really actually killed her.
2: It's not hard to picture him in that role when investigators learn about Lane's peculiar taste in movies.
8: And while executing the search warrant in Massachusetts, the detectives found the DVD hunting humans inside the truck.
7: And it's my belief he was trying to pattern his behavior after the actors in the movie.
8: It's a low-grade movie about a killer who dresses
2: up and essentially breaks into people's houses while they're sleeping. Was Lane acting out the part in real life? Or is he simply a fan of slasher movies? We needed factual, credible evidence. Their best bet so far? A knife confiscated from Lane that night in Chelmsford but it will be a while before DNA test results are back. Finding anything else on Lane won't be
5: easy. We decided our best opportunity would be to be and go to Massachusetts and get a statement from Adam Lane, regardless whether he's going to confess
2: or not. If anyone can make a bad guy talk, it's ace interviewer Detective Sergeant Jeff Noble.
8: This is your first time in jail? Yeah. First time I've never been arrested and I've never been in trouble. My initial impression of Adam Lane was that he was a very polite, respectful gentleman. He came across just like a regular guy. So, like two regular guys, they chat about this and that. The first hour or two of the interview was just conversation. Um, But it was a purposeful conversation. The conversation was to assist us with understanding Adam Lane, to know who he was, and more importantly,
2: to know where he'd been. And Noble knows just how to get him to admit he's been in New Jersey.
8: How'd you get to Massachusetts Point 95?
4: I just told you. I went, up, I went up 83, hit 78, or not 78, but 81 to 78.
2: Lane freely admits to driving on Interstate 78, which runs through Bloomsbury, and even draws the detective a map showing him exactly where he's been. Now, can Noble get him to say when he passed through town?
4: If you want to know what time it was exactly, the best way I can do it is there is a receipt where I bought that radar detector.
2: Either Lane doesn't know that investigators found the truck stop receipt, or he knows full well they have the goods on him.
8: Did you go anywhere else? Did, did, you, leave, uh, did you go anywhere, drive anywhere, walk anywhere on that location? There ain't nowhere to go.
2: But Noble knows that's not true. Main Street is just steps away. And I ultimately asked him, point blank, did you assault someone in uh, New Jersey? And he looked at me in the eye and said no. Looks like Noble has Lane boxed into a corner with no way out. Ultimately,
8: Adam Lane, after the questions became more pointed,
2: kind of put his head down and he said, he said the words, I'm done. For a guy who claims he didn't do anything, Lane sure is acting like a guilty man. As it turns out, Lane isn't done just yet. He's about to reveal his true colors. Adam Lane is 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 about as bad as it gets. You might say he's a wolf in sheep's clothing. Just when Bloomsbury, New Jersey investigators think their interview with suspected killer Adam Lane is over, it's back on again. And detectives can't wait to hear what he has to say about Monica Massaro.
8: Is it your wish to speak with us now? Yes. Have we forced you or coerced you to get you to speak to us? No. Are you completely and voluntarily uh, wishing to speak with us at this time?
4: Yes.
2: Before detectives have time to get comfortable in their chairs, Lane makes a startling confession.
4: I was walking around, walking around, I always do.
2: Lane claims he was simply walking down Main Street, looking for a house to rob, when he stumbled upon an unlocked door and a pretty blonde in her bedroom. He said Monica Massaro awoke and it
8: interrupted what he was doing. He said that he got scared and told Monica Massaro... To be quiet.
4: Started screaming. You have to run.
8: First thing I did, it happened. And when you say he said it happened," what happened? And he put the knife next to her throat to keep her quiet so that he wouldn't get caught. And he initially told us that during the struggle. That she turned her head suddenly and according to him, cut herself on his knife.
4: Yeah, killed an accident. I never meant to hurt nobody. God how I killed kill nobody.
2: The detectives aren't buying Lane's story. Monica Masaro was nearly decapitated. That doesn't happen by accident. But Lane's version of events really doesn't matter. And he was able to give such specific details
8: that the only person that could know those details would have been the actual killer. Based on the content of that interview, we did charge Adam Lane criminally uh, with the murder of Monica Massaro. A killer with ice running through his veins. I didn't sense any remorse, I didn't sense any feelings of guilt. I did, however, sense that Adam Lane
2: was upset that he'd been caught. Lane has good reason to be upset. New Jersey State Police have a feeling Monica isn't his only victim. If he murdered her and tried to kill Shea McDonough, he's probably done this before. After all, as a truck driver, Lane sure got around. Being a trucker, you have a lot of time to yourself
8: when you don't have a boss on you. So it allowed him the opportunity to do what he wanted to do when he wanted to do it without anybody really knowing it.
5: All the wheels started turning, and we now had to go back to everywhere Adam Lane had been and visit all his stops on his route to see if there was other potential victims. If detectives are right,
2: does that mean Lane, a married father of two little girls, with no criminal history, is a serial killer? It's not uncommon for serial killers
8: to not have a criminal history. The reason being is they're
2: good at what they do, and they don't get caught. Sure enough, a month before the Massaro homicide, there was a similar murder 100 miles away in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, just up the street from a truck stop. Darlene Ewald was standing on her
8: back deck of her uh, rural home. She was talking on the telephone to some friends, and her friends reported hearing Darlene say, Oh my God, oh my God, and the phone went dead.
2: Like Monica, Darlene's throat had been slit from ear to ear. And four days later, and just 30 minutes away from the Ewalt residence, an almost identical scene played out in Patricia Brooks's home in York, Pennsylvania.
5: She was stabbed and had her throat cut. However, she happened to survive the attack.
2: Investigators don't know for sure if Lane is responsible for the Pennsylvania cases, but they strongly suspect it.
5: All the incidents were very similar. He was a suspect, he was interviewed, and refused to talk any
2: further. Just as well, detectives don't need Lane to say anything else. DNA has already done the talking for him.
5: We collected DNA evidence from those victims and were able to match it to the DNA that was found on Adam Lane's knife.
2: Bingo. It turns out the knife confiscated from Lane the night he was caught in Shay McDonough's bedroom was his weapon of choice. It's the very same knife he used to kill Monica Massaro and Darlene Ewald. DNA on a glove found outside Patricia Brooks's home connects him to that attempted at homicide. It took
5: a couple weeks, but everything fell into place because everyone did the right thing. But we can't, we can't be fooled. If the McDonough's didn't catch Adam Lane, I can't tell you that we would have. We learned that, Whenever he came home, he would scrub his knife.
2: We might have lost that DNA. Investigators no longer doubt that Lane is a serial killer. He is one. Adam Lane didn't fall through the cracks.
8: He has been identified for exactly what he is, which is a cold, vicious killer who deserves and needs to be locked up for the rest of his life.
2: You are giving up the right to have a jury trial on this. Lane
8: gave no further confessions or other confessions regarding any other crimes. Although he did not confess to them, he did acknowledge in court and plead guilty to those
2: crimes.
5: Yeah, it was your intent to cause her death when you cut her throat, is that correct? Yes.
2: Lane is currently in a Massachusetts prison and will never see the light of day again. He received multiple sentences for his crimes. Thanks to Lane's confession at his sentencing, investigators now know what really happened to Monica that night in July 2007.
7: Adam Lane parked his truck in Bloomsbury, New Jersey, knowing that he was gonna begin hunting his next victim. He eventually found an unlocked door on Main Street.
8: He wanted to kill. I don't think it mattered who he was going to kill.
7: And I think that he went into the house of Monica Massaro, saw her lying in bed, um, reading her into his version of Harry
8: Potter, and
7: uh, caught her off guard.
8: Adam Lane uh, murdered Monica Massaro using a large hunting knife. I believe that the first attack on her was the lethal wound to her neck. Uh, He stabbed her numerous times. The evidence shown that Monica Massaro did try to defend herself. The evidence also shows that Adam Lane took advantage of her situation. She was chosen at random. There's no other reason why Monica Becerra was victimized that night other than the fact that her door was unlocked.
5: Within minutes, Lane's back outside. He then returned back to where his truck was parked at the truck stop, changed out of his clothing, put his knives away, and he went in and actually made some purchases inside the
2: store. After breakfast, Lane heads back to his rig with a brand new radar detector for the ride north to Chelmsford, Massachusetts. Yeah, but he couldn't stop
5: himself. 24 hours later, he's prowling around the neighborhood, almost gets caught at one house, and then he goes into the McDonough's house. It almost seemed like every time he stopped, he was gonna kill somebody, or try to kill somebody. He was
2: out on the hunt. Unlike many serial killers, Lane didn't sexually assault his victims. For him, it was all about the kill. Does he have more victims
5: than we know about? Possibly. I think we caught a serial killer possibly early in his killing career. Absolutely, because he wasn't going to stop.
2: Good thing Lane is finally off the streets. Lauren Berger is sleeping a little easier at night these days, grateful that her friend's killer is behind bars.
6: And when I was told of the story of him and how they had connected him. It was just, there was a sense of relief that we had finally known who had done this to her. The death of the pretty
2: blonde on Main Street has changed Bloomsbury forever. Life here just isn't as peachy keen as it used to be. These days, Most everybody locks their doors at night and keeps a close eye on the truck stop up the street. I think that the folks in Bloomsbury learned not to take anything for granted,
7: that as quiet and quaint as they feel their town may be, anything too can happen and anything is possible.
5: Nickelodeon was kid everything. But that marked one of the darkest chapters. Three predators
1: worked at Nickelodeon.
3: It made me wonder who was being hurt. Quiet on set. An ID true crime event. Sunday, March 17th at 9. On ID and stream on Max.